It'll probably surprise nobody to learn that I was a bit of a nerd in middle school. (laughs) I had never really paid attention to politics until 1992, though. But in that election year, something really clicked with me, and I was fascinated. In my eighth grade social studies class, my teacher, Mrs. Wheeler, had our classes learn about the election by allowing us to learn about the candidates, and we got to pose as them in mock debates. Now, this was Raleigh, North Carolina in 1992, Uh, so out of 93 eighth graders, only myself and Katina White dared to support Bill Clinton. The rest of the class split evenly amongst President Bush and Ross Perot. Suffice it to say, despite Katina and I giving it our all in our debates, the Clinton-Gore ticket lost miserably when our entire eighth grade class voted. But I had a new interest, and I loved this fascinating thing called politics. That same year, when our language arts teacher assigned us all a project in which we were to interview and write a story about someone who we admired, almost every other student chose their church youth director, their dance teacher, their scout leader, or one of their parents. Little old eighth grade me called up the office of our U.S. Senator and former North Carolina Governor Terry Sanford and asked him if I could interview him for my paper, and he actually invited me to his office in Raleigh and let me talk to him for a whole hour. Now, Terry Sanford has always been a political hero of mine, and the fact that I actually got to meet him as an eighth grader before he died is probably one of my most cherished moments. And actually, that might have been the only A I made in all of middle school. I was not a great student. I had far too many other things distracting me. It wasn't that I couldn't do the work. It was mostly that I wouldn't do the work. And it affected my grades, not just in eighth grade, but all the way through high school. But fortunately for me, that same eighth grade year, that same social studies teacher offered me an opportunity to earn some extra credit to make up for my missed assignments by initiating some sort of project on my own. So always a producer, I went big. I called the campaign office for the man running for re-election as U.S. congressman in our district, and somehow the eighth grader talked his campaign manager into having him come and speak to my eighth grade class, and he did. He won his re-election to that seat in 1992, and I'm going to continue to tell myself that uh, his speech to my eighth grade class had a lot to do with that. But I know it didn't. Congressman David Price has been representing me and my hometown in the United States Congress for almost my entire lifetime. Of the 435 current members in the U.S. House of Representatives, only six were elected to office before him. He's not only an institution in the U.S. House, he's been a constant symbol in my own life of a dedicated public servant and an example that I personally wish more lawmakers would follow. It is a very special week here at Politicon. This week's episode marks the end of our very first full year of podcast episodes, our 52nd. Hard to believe. So this week, Politicon is, and so am I, thrilled to celebrate by welcoming one of my personal favorites, Congressman David Price. I'll ask him to tell us about the changes he's seen since he joined the U.S. House in the 1980s. What are some of the ways that Congress works better now than it did when it started? What are some of the ways that it's dropped the ball? And what does it take to represent Americans well in Congress? And how the heck are we going to get along? How are you doing? I haven't seen or heard from you in a long time. It's been a minute. Well, nobody's... 
with what I do, nobody leaves their house anymore. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't been well, anywhere in a while. <laughs> I'm sort of, I'm more that way than you might think. Although I am in DC right now, I did drive up this afternoon. Do you? Um, but I mean, you've been there, obviously. So yeah, we, needed I, it. we had we had to get sworn in in person, but we can vote by proxy, and so I did some of that this fall. Okay, well, you, but I, I've seen you. I, I watch C-SPAN more than I probably should admit to anyone. <laughs> so I've seen you a few times, actually, I think, voted proxy for other people. I think um, uh, at least one of the votes I saw. Um, yeah. So, But you don't, there's not much you can do in the district, though, right now, is there, to get out? So much is closed, yeah? No, well, no, except that the, uh, the district, uh, the different groups have caught on to Zoom meetings, you know. So, uh, right. <laughs> we, well, we just we can we have them back to back. It seems like so. Well, it's, it's this, a busy this, it's a busy time. This episode is the first our our anniversary episode for this Politicon podcast. We started a year ago, and when we were deciding who we wanted to have on for, you know, sort of a momentous episode, I said, listen, you know who I really want to talk to is Congressman Price. And well, I've t- I told I'm, the I'm producers glad. about, well, I've told the producers about me calling you and you came to my eighth grade class at Leesville Middle back in 1992 and spoke and all of those stories I've talked to him about. And um, I even told, we had Congressman David Jolly on last week, um, the former congressman oh. from Florida. And uh your name came up. I told him how excited I was I was to be having you on this week and asked him if he got to work with you any in his time there. And he said, no, I didn't get to work with him as much. But he said, but my textbook, my political science textbook in college was written by him. And I said, well, see, oh, my goodness. <laughs> he literally wrote the book on how to be a congressman. <laughs> you, um, you... We, I did an intro, and I told, like I said, I told the story about eighth grade, and I, I, I talked about how I got into politics and started being really interested in it at that point, and how I consider my eighth grade year sort of the seminal moment when I thought, okay, I'm going to really pay attention to um, the political world and just was so interested in it and, and how you were a part of that. You, and we talked about how, you know, you've been in Congress longer than all but just a few people, uh, just a handful of people who are there right now. And and I want to talk some about, like, the changes that have, like, how how much different it is today than it was when you started. But that's such a broad question that I'm not going to throw that at you. Um, how do you feel about the level of partisanship right now? That you that you have to deal with in in Congress, whether that be January sixth type discussions and the Marjorie Taylor Greene stuff of the last few weeks, or just the general atmosphere of partisanship in Washington right now. How does it? How does? What are your thoughts on it? Well, you know the examples you mention are uh, are signs of the times. I don't know necessarily they're signs of partisanship. They're they're certainly not signs of uh, of a kind of um, mainstream partisanship, I would say the party leaders are, are the, or at least the more responsible kind of mainstream party leaders, of the Republican Party aren't um, aren't crazy about Marjorie Taylor Greene and the kind of um, the kind of um, uh, stick she brings to the House. Um, but but it is uh, the, it is true though that the the parties are farther apart. Uh, they're more polarized, and uh, I think, especially in the Republican Party, there's been uh, 
a real tug to the uh, ideological extreme. There's some of that in both parties, but uh, especially among Republicans. And, and so um, it has made things much, much harder. You know, when I, when I first came, I, w- I came in um, 1987, and, and um, the House was already uh, becoming more um, organized around the two parties. We had strong party leadership. Jim Wright was a, was a hard-charging uh, speaker when I came in. And so um, it certainly wasn't uh, all bipartisan, but there was a possibility in um, the committees especially of working together, working across party lines, coming to some kind of accommodation. And um, I really enjoyed that. And uh, I uh, found it a, a productive uh, kind of atmosphere. But then I, uh, my third term got uh, on the committee, I think most people would say is the least partisan of all appropriations. And that's still true. That's one reason I like it. We, we work on dollars and cents matters in a fairly common sense way. Uh, so uh, there's still some, um, some vestiges of that uh, more cooperative uh, kind of relationship in the, in the House. But uh, appropriations often get swamped by partisan forces. You know, we end up with these end of session um, crises, uh, shutdowns or near shutdowns and budget deals. And, you know, all that gets very hyper. And so, um, yeah, it's more partisan, more divided. And uh, I think, therefore, less uh, less enjoyable, less productive place for, for many members. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had to develop strong leadership to deal with this. You know, you can't just let nature take its course in the House anymore. You've got to have uh, got to have centralized, strong leadership. And of course, Newt Gingrich uh, on the Republican side set the set the bar pretty high for that. But when Nancy Pelosi came in, she didn't go back to the old committee-centered model. She has been a strong leader as well, and I'd say she needs to be. Do you do you get to work across the aisle much then outside of appropriations? Or I mean, again, you've you've been in the fourth district for twenty some years now. You have a little bit more. I mean, I was joking to someone. They, they, the producer said, well, if he's too late, you'll just run against him. And I said, there's no chance in hell because he's an institution in the triangle. There's no one who could beat David Price now. Um, but I said, but but you have that luxury of being able to have the seniority that you have. and and do, But do you get to do too much with the other side? Or is it really a almost parliamentary whipped votes <laughs> sort of well, scenario? You know, it's- yeah, you're, it's, a, it's a good question because you're right to infer that it's not a complete transformation, and it isn't. We're not a parliament. We're, 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 not, uh, we're not regimented to that degree. And uh, there, is, there are differentiations within. Appropriations, uh, as I said, is, uh, is a relatively cooperative arena, although we sometimes get swamped by these uh, end-of-session uh, uh, showdowns. Um, I I'm the chairman, I'm the founder and the chairman of a, of a, of a totally nonpartisan group called the House Democracy Partnership, which I really value. I, uh, I, that we've done this for 15 years now and, uh, we, we have just a, a completely uh, congenial bipartisan approach, uh, to, uh, working with parliaments in uh, developing countries. Um, this was started in the, in the House by, uh, uh, guy named Martin Frost back when uh, communism fell in Eastern Europe and uh, the House began helping these uh, parliaments in 
that had been just showcase parliaments under communism helped them get up and running and become European parliaments. The, the Polish parliament, the, the Czech, the uh, Baltic parliaments, all of that uh, was um, a, uh, they, they flourished, I think, partly because they did get international support, especially from this country. Well, Gingrich let that die, and I thought that was a big mistake. So I, uh, I brought it back with the, uh, with the help, though. It would have been impossible without the help of a Republican speaker, Dennis Hester. And uh, David Dreyer of California, Republican, and I uh, co-led this for years. And now I'm once again the chairman. And, and we, uh, we really do think it's important to uh, send a signal of uh, cooperation, but also to make it real in the way we work. So I must say it's one of the most enjoyable things I do. Why do you think we don't hear about those things? I'm sorry? Why do you think we don't hear? Why, the, why do you think the public doesn't hear so much about that? I mean, uh, obviously the news wants to fixate on things that are a little bit more juicy and controversial. But, uh, but the general sense from the American public, I think, is that Congress is just a cesspit of people fighting and not getting anything productive done. Why do we not hear more about things like this or bipartisan solutions to uh, the budget or, or immigration? Why, why do we not get to hear any of the good stuff? Well, if you're telling me there is. is <laughs> the con yeah, the, con the conflict is real and the conflict is more severe. And so uh, there's, there's, of course, truth in that, uh, in that portrayal. But I'm, I'm saying it's not the whole picture. And it's a good question why we don't hear more about the, uh, the other side. I, I think the press is drawn to... Um, drawn to conflict. Uh, you, you know, they uh, they love covering campaigns. They give a big yawn when it comes to uh, covering the day-to-day -day work of the Congress. And so it's our job, of course, to make it more interesting and exciting and dramatic. We we try in various ways to do that with uh, Is it? mixed success. <laughs> is that your job? I mean, there, it, there's multiple. What What is the job of a Congress, of a, of a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, in your opinion? And I, I, I think I've known you and followed you long enough to know what I think your answer will be. But what really well, you know, is the job uh, of a congressman? Well, you know, a lot of people uh, being asked that question might fall back on Sam Rayburn's old distinction between uh, – Workhorses and show horses. Well, I was going to say go right there and do it, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and of course, Sam Rayburn left no doubt he preferred the workhorses. But but I but I don't I don't want to get too high and mighty about that because uh, you know there's something to being a show horse or at least to um, to to knowing that you you really do have to uh, your good works don't speak for themselves. You really do have to uh, reach out. You really do have to engage, and you have to uh, think about how to make uh, what you're doing uh, engaging and exciting. Uh, you know that's um, that's fair enough. So I don't uh, I don't want to get totally absorbed in that messaging enterprise, but I also think that uh, you know the graveyards are littered with members who thought they could just be just workhorses and think their uh, their good works would uh, would just be readily applauded, even if they didn't uh, do anything to uh, let people know. Listen, I watch the news like it's some. Um, I did cut it off during COVID last year because I just couldn't. My my blood pressure medicine wasn't strong enough. But I do watch it a lot. And in the in the twenty plus years that you've been my representative, I don't think I've ever seen you on a national news program. And 
I tell people all the time I sort of like that. I mean, there are some who, it seems, live in the rotunda of the Capitol where the cameras are, and some whose names are never heard. You know, I, I, Marcy Captor and, and you come to mind as two who have been in Congress um, for a long time and have not necessarily sought praise or attention for it from a national audience. And I mean, that's a, I mean that as a, as a compliment and a thank you. As my representative, I appreciate that you're doing what you're doing versus running to the cameras. But uh, how, much, how much good can a Congress member in 2021 actually do now if they don't take advantage of AOC's type of media exposure, if they're not doing in some ways what Eric Swalwell is doing or, or and being on camera a lot. Are, are there different strengths that workhorses have than show horses have and vice versa? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I've been on some of those shows. Uh, I I, uh, I didn't mean to have, say you've have, never have, done have them. Been, I'm just saying well, I, you know, you're I've not actually, the, the most I'm dangerous not, uh, place in D.C. is between no. so-and-so and a camera, not yeah, no, between no, no, you and a camera. <laughs> no one would ever say that, no. Yes. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the most exciting uh, feature on the evening news. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm aware that I have certain certain talents, and that's not one of them. But um, I do think uh, the answer to your question is yes. I mean, there are different roles that people respect, and uh, and and uh, it, it may not be quite as simple as just work horses and show horses. But there there are different styles, there are different uh, areas that we uh, specialize in, um, and the place is still. Uh, you know, flexible enough, fluid enough, where you can uh, you can get some satisfaction uh, doing something like uh, uh, initiating a, uh, a a body to work with the parliaments inter- internationally, or uh, or or uh, you know, in my case, I'm now on appropriations, and I get a lot of my satisfaction from uh, from boosting things that I believe in. Uh, you know, within the uh, the housing and transportation areas. I mean, that really is obscure in terms of people's knowing about it. But uh, when, I'm, when when North Carolina gets a, a major grant that's uh, going to let us sooner rather than later uh, institute uh, train service from, from Raleigh to Richmond and, and make this uh, Southeast <laughs> Corridor. If really, my uh, if my twelve year old son could hear what I was what you were talking about right now, he would run to DC on his feet and hug you. That's all he wants is for you yeah. to bring train service from Raleigh to Richmond and, and, well, and beyond. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's um, that's, that's what he worth working on, and uh, and yes, that's that's one area where uh, I can say I've scored a few points. But but you know, do it's, um, but do those who are on camera ever? I mean, I, I'm, the last thing I want you to do is try to say something bad about anyone specifically, but are, do those who are on camera from either party do more to hurt the actual progress and work that that either you or perhaps Speaker Pelosi is trying to push through um, by, you know, I'm going to use a name, you don't have to, but, I, you know, I think about people like AOC or, or Rashida Tlaib or some of the very outspoken folks who focus on s- certain issues that may not be the priority for, um, you know, the speaker at the moment. Do some of those show, I'm not going to use your word, because you, the word, because you don't like it, but do some of those um, more vocal congressmen and women ever get in the way um, 
and and how did those how how did how does the party how does the leadership kind of reel them in at t- when necessary? Well, some members I'm not going to single out anybody either, but some members can very definitely get in the way, and uh, uh, when it's a matter of cultivating an external constituency, you know, whether it's on social media or whatever, then uh, yeah, you know, the premium is not on making a deal and compromising the 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 premium often is on being a kind of righteous, uh, uh, righteous aloofness from this fray, you know, to, to say that you, uh, no matter what, you're never going to compromise. You're never going to give in. That's just not a very good formula for legislative work. But I, let me, let me, uh, let me just say that there are some people who, uh, I really admire who combine these gifts in, in very good ways. I mean, I think of, um, I think of, for example, Adam Schiff, who is, um, you know, I've known Adam forever, and we've done a lot of work internationally with these with these parliaments. And uh, Adam didn't start out as a, as a media darling, but he uh, certainly has become one. But he's very substantive. I mean, when you see Adam Schiff on uh, uh, on on one of these cable shows, it's it's going to be serious business. And uh, I'd say the same about Chris Coons and Dick Durbin. Uh, I, I think I think there are members who are skilled hardworking legislators who are also very, very good at the, uh, at the interpretive game. And, and, and so uh, I, I think you can combine the two. It's uh, but, but um, the problem is if you totally go one direction or, or the other, uh, you, you got to pay attention to the, to serious work around here. And you got to pay attention also to making sure somebody knows about it. So on that note, um, and, and I'll keep Adam Schiff on the list here, but, uh, but Speaker Pelosi, Steny Hoyer. Steny Hoyer is one of the only, I think there are only six who have been, who were elected to the House before you were. Steny Hoyer is one of those few. Um, Steny Hoyer, Adam, Sh- uh, Speaker Pelosi, Jim Clyburn, the leadership and the Democrat. Actually, I've got a little seniority on Nancy about uh, just oh, right. a few months. No, no, I'm saying, She well, was elected in a special election that same year I came. Yeah. You got January 87. She came in, I think, June or July, right? Yeah. Um, oh, well, you've done some homework. But, yes. Oh, yeah, sure. I did. I checked my math. Steny Hoyer <laughs> came in a little bit before you did. Marcy Castor yeah, did, and a, I think. And then there's yes. one, I think, who, I think there's one other one that I can't remember the name of at the moment. Marcy Captor has been here right. longer. Um, uh, but Steny, there are. Uh, yeah, there Steny's an old friend of Jim Hunt's. He's been here uh, a good a, a good deal longer. There's a there the leadership in, in the in the structure of the Democrat Party right now in the House is older. Who <laughs> that's a very kind way to put it. Yes. <laughs> who is the? I don't want you to go anywhere. I'm selfish. I want you to stay where you are. But but who's the who's the future of the Democrat Party? Because I mean, they it's it's strange to look at the leadership and the Democrats and of the Democrats in the House, and then look at the leadership of the Republicans in the House. They look like spring chickens over there on the Republican side compared to the Democrat side. So who's next? There's is there, are there people in the pipeline? Who do you think will will be the future of the Democrat Party if for some reason? Speaker Pelosi were to choose to not be speaker in the next few terms. Uh, yes, I think so. And I, I, uh, I, she's not going to be speaker forever any more than I'm going to be around here forever. I think, uh, I think uh, for the leadership, for those three leaders, all of which are uh, 80, 80 something, you know, 80 or 81, you know, those three leaders uh, will, uh, will, will not, um, 
be there too many more years. And um, it, it could well be that uh, Nancy has said she's going to step down next time. So it could well be there's a major changing of the guard after the uh, 2022 elections. I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. There and, must um, be some younger or newer oh, there's some really good, good. that you specifically like. I wouldn't ask you to single out people who you didn't no, I, like. I'm happy but what about the ones few. you like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there was a... Um, there was a generation of uh, of leaders I thought would would be um, uh, you know the, the the next ones in line uh, that included Chris Van Hollen, Javier Becerra, who became Attorney General of uh, California and now is about I hope to become a Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services, uh, Joe Crowley of New York, who AOC took out in a primary. Mm-hmm. That that was the that was the group coming on, and uh, well, ain't, ain't so, none of them available. They're not around, so the question <laughs> is who? Who now? And uh, I think you've got a, a, a you've got a good um, a good group. Well, Hakeem Jeffries, the uh, head of the Democratic Caucus, is uh, is outstanding. Um, there's a young um, Latino guy named Pete Aguilar from California. There is uh, uh, Hakeem is uh, is African American. Uh, there is um, there's good um, good leadership, a, a very diverse kind of uh, leadership, I think, uh, coming along. And um, this this is kind of the uh, the trial period. I think everybody knows that uh, that this group of six or seven people in leadership right now they're uh, they're uh, one of these days probably be running against each other, or at least people are going to be picking and choosing. But I feel really good about them. I, I'm glad I'm glad we have Nancy right now and Steny and Jim. Because this has been a really trying time. Trump, uh, Trump has the Trump period has uh, has been very, very difficult. I think Nancy says that if uh, Hillary had won that election, she probably would have left, and I think that's true. I think um, I think a lot of us have the feeling that we kind of rose to the occasion or needed to needed to stick around to deal with uh, with Trump and what the Republican Party became under Trump. But uh, that uh, that of course is mercifully now. I hope. Uh, behind us. And uh, so, yes, I think but, you look for uh, new leadership pretty quickly now. But look at, I mean, the names that you gave, um, uh, one's from New York, one's from California. Um, what does the Democrat Party need to do to reach out more to those voters in the Midwest or the South um, who they lost? I mean, when you were there in the 90s, uh, I I can't think of who the Democrat leader was in the 90s uh, when Newt Gingrich was the um, speaker, but on the Senate. Oh, well, Dick yeah, Gephardt. You're, Dick you're Gephardt. right on target. It was Dick Gephardt from Missouri. And, you're right. and Tom Daschle was uh, from South Dakota right. in, in the Senate side. The leadership and the faces of the Democrat Party have been increasingly Northeastern, Western, and very, very few from the Midwest and the South. What And those also seem to be a lot of the states that Democrats continue to lose more and more, What, or at least did in, in 2016. What, what do the Democrats need to do to kind of get back some of that working-class, Midwest, blue-collar, Southern voter base that Democrats had in the 90s? Yeah, that's... Uh... That's a big challenge. And of course, it isn't just personalities, although it's partly personalities. I mean, a, 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 a good Midwestern leader, somebody who uh, is in tune with the kind of folks you're talking about, I would say 
Senator Sherrod Brown is, is, is one such. I'd say Tim Ryan in the House is a, mm-hmm. is a very attractive guy and has a, a lot of that appeal. Uh, he may be in the Marcy Senate Kaptur. come two years from now. Yeah, Marcy Kaptur is a, a she has working class roots and proudly says so, as does Debbie Dingle. Um, you know, we have good. But you're talking about, you're also respectfully talking about Marcy Kaptur and Debbie Dingle, who Marcy Kaptur will likely be a part of this retiring class before too many more terms. Are there, besides Tim Ryan, are there young, energetic, vibrant, working class Midwest and Southern Democrats in the House right now? Yes, there are. There are not as many as I would like, but there are some. I'll tell you another comer is uh, Sherry Bustos. Uh, she uh, comes from uh, uh, Illinois and is uh, very much, she wins in a red district. She she had a tough time this this time. I mean, she doesn't win hands down, but she's uh, she's a she's a college uh, volleyball star and uh, married to a, a law enforcement officer. And uh, she's she's a good campaigner. She ran our campaign committee uh, one cycle. So so that's the example. That's an example of the sort of leaders I think we're uh, we're, we're looking for. But um, I take your point. I mean, I think uh, I think the party has become uh, too. Um, too much uh, centered in uh, the east and west coasts, and uh, and we've paid a price. We uh, we we really have to put a better foot forward in the in the heartland. Now, I want to take a minute to tell you about an awesome and delicious service that's really perfect, especially for the times we're in right now. Um, it's HelloFresh, and you've heard about HelloFresh probably, but you really need to take another look at HelloFresh and how great it is. With HelloFresh, you totally get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and incredible, blah, 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 incredible recipes. I do know how to speak. I don't know how to cook, though. Um, and so HelloFresh is sort of perfect for me because you get all the ingredients and they're already measured. Like, that's always my biggest problem when it comes to cooking, knowing how to measure the right amount of all these ingredients and make sure it all gets in the right place. HelloFresh does all that work for you. And it also lets you skip the trips to the grocery store. And it it's totally easy and it's fun and it's affordable. And it's actually now, I believe, America's number one meal kit. It is the OG. It is the the GOAT, the greatest of all time when it comes to meal kits. They have a whole bunch of recipes, uh, dozens of recipes, and they've got a range of flavors. And it's not just different flavors, it's different cuisines and a whole bunch of ingredients. And you won't get bored. There's always something new to try every single week. You've always got a new recipe to do. And it's totally convenient. And it's never been healthier, never been easier. You can actually get low-cal meals. You can get carb-smart meals, vegetarian meals fish lover, I think that's pescatarian meal options. They've got those every week. Um, So if you're a vegetarian, you're never going to have to just sit around and wait until they have a veggie option. They've got that every week. And no matter what you choose, every single one of them comes totally packed with fresh produce. It's sourced directly from farmers. And you can be flexible with it. You can customize the weeks you need it. You can add in extra proteins, extra sides, change up the serving size. If you've got guests coming over, if you want to do a dinner party and look like 
like you are real fancy and know what you're doing, or you just want to double up on the favorite recipes because they're really good and you want extra helpings next time, um, you can make your box work for you every week. And you can easily change your delivery days or your food preferences. You can skip a week. I've done some of these meal delivery services. They screw you over because you got to subscribe and you can't skip weeks. And then you're going to be out of time. HelloFresh, you can skip weeks. And they're quick. They're healthy. It's 10, 20 minutes. You can feed your whole family in minutes. Um, we're always pressed for time at my house. These meals are perfect when you're pressed for time. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 10HEC and use the code 10HEC for 10 meals. So it's HelloFresh.com slash 10HEC and use the code 10HEC, 10HEC, for 10 free meals, 10 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash 10HEC and use the code 10HEC for 10 free meals, including free shipping. It's America's number one meal kit. One more time, go to HelloFresh.com slash 10HEC and use the code 10HEC, that's all one word, for 10 free meals, including free shipping, or look for the link in our show notes. Y'all had a call um, that kind of got leaked right at the beginning of the year a little bit. Um, I remember Abigail Sponberger having um, some choice quotes that came out of that um, caucus call about uh, the the differing opinions within the Democrat Party on how to win. The Cori Bush successes and the Jamal Bowman success versus the how how difficult it was for Abigail Spineberger or Connor Lamb to win their districts. Um, right. Where do you where do you you actually kind of have a very in a little interesting scenario here in the triangle being that it's your district's pretty pretty progressive um, with Chapel Hill and parts of Raleigh. Where do you fall on that? Because I, again, you're in a place where you you're safe and loved and you don't have much to worry about when it comes to re-election, but you're also one of the only members of Congress in the South, Democrats in the South right now, who, you know, pieces of your district have over the years fallen into some of these more suburban areas. So the, the Abigail Spanberger versus Cory Bush argument where, where do you what do you think the Democrat Party needs to do to make sure that both of that it doesn't split just like the Republicans look like they're doing? Yeah, that's uh, that's a uh, that's a good question. I mercifully, I don't think we do have anything like the split the Republicans have. But uh, first of all, we got to respect both the Spanbergers and the Cory Bushes of the world and the kind of districts they represent, and we've got to have a. Uh, a big enough tent to include both of them, but you know most most people, including me, are uh, are somewhere between those two. Uh, my situation has evolved. Uh, you, you know, there's no question uh, that uh, I was a swing seat for a long time. I I, mm-hmm. uh, I defeated a Republican incumbent, and then, as you well know, I was defeated by uh, mm-hmm. the Raleigh police chief in uh, 1994 in the Gingrich sweep. Then I made a then I made a comeback and. Uh, you know, I, I know what it's like to be in a Spamberger type seat. What changed that in North Carolina was uh, nothing I did, honestly. It was uh, what the legislature did in drawing these uh, districts, right, well, you particularly the last 10 years. <laughs> I was right there but, in it. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, you were. You know what I'm talking about. But particularly the last uh, the last 10 years, you know, they, they just egregiously 
gerrymandered the state and created all these Republican districts. And, and so um, it was no favor to me. They just wanted to jam all the African-Americans and all the Democrats they could find into a single district. And that happened to be my district. So that's good fortune for me. But it, uh, it of course, uh, made for a very, very lopsided uh, congressional delegation. But, but if you uh, didn't have the seniority and the name recognition and the, you know, the respect that you have right now, don't you think you, in a district like the 4th, would end up having to potentially be running in a primary against someone who was far more progressive than perhaps the rest of the country is? Or, I mean, isn't that the problem that a lot of people are now having to worry more about their primaries than their general elections? Yes, yes. Absolutely. The answer is yes. And uh, that, true is, that too is true in both parties. But... Um, can Congress the, uh, do anything about that, or is that so constitutionally man, you know, handled that Congress can't pass a law to restrict political gerrymandering? I think we could pass a law tomorrow if we had the political will to do it. I, I certainly would vote for it. It's it, that we have a uh, we have a comprehensive reform proposal that we call HR one because it's the uh, we gave it primacy when we took leadership two years ago. And it includes nonpartisan redistricting commissions for every state, and that's uh, oh, I think that's an idea whose time has come. But would in, it hold up meantime, to the courts? Oh, I think so. Yes, I mean, look, uh, how many states already have uh, nonpartisan commissions? I mean, it's uh, it's now around fifteen or so. I mean, people are sick of this this uh, just egregious political uh, gerrymandering. And uh, North Carolina is a poster child for this. Um, I, I don't know what it's going to take, but I, uh, to, you know, for the state to, to make the change. But um, if the state doesn't make the change, I'm, I'm all for the federal government making it for us. I just think uh, it's, uh, it's gone way, uh, gotten way out of hand. But, but what's happened is, of course, my district has become solidly Democratic so that the others are all more Republican. That's the idea. And then uh, you're right. To the extent I would have a challenge, it probably would come from the left, you know, within a Democratic primary. This episode is sponsored by Apostrophe. Apostrophe's prescription skincare company for people that are ready to take their acne seriously. Now, again, this episode, we're talking a little bit about me in middle school. I actually lucked out in middle school. I didn't have that much acne, but I got to be honest with you, some of the people in my class were all covered in it. Um, and people, and I know people who are are not just teenagers, but young adults, adults who have acne. Apostrophe is the perfect company for you. Um, prescription acne treatment, I know because I've, saw, I've seen people use it. It absolutely works, but it's hard to get. You got to go take time off your doc, uh, time off of work to go see a doctor. You got to go to the pharmacy, sit in line, all those medications. Then apostrophe comes along, makes it totally easy. You can totally see a board certified dermatologist right online. You get treated immediately with your medications delivered right to your door. You fill out an apostrophe online questionnaire. You talk about your skin concerns, medical history, then you snap a few selfies, and the dermatologist gets right back to you with a customized treatment plan. It's incredibly easy. Everybody knows how to do selfies. This is really easy. The best part is that they've got the topical and oral medications, so you actually get to treat your acne from the inside out or the outside in. 
Um, and they don't just do acne either. You know, I, I know it's something that people are especially really focused on, but a- a- apostrophe can cover a whole bunch of other stuff. They've got reducing redness, which I probably need, wrinkles, which I definitely need. They got dark spot treatment for dark spots. They really do everything that a dermatologist can do. You can do it apostrophe. And it's nice to know that you had a real dermatologist, you know, not just something that's a scam. These are real board certified dermatologists and you're getting the real juice, the real good stuff. It's customized for exactly what you want to fix. And you don't have to schedule an appointment either. You actually just go on the app and bam, you get you get what you need right away. Their products feel great on your skin. They absorb real nicely. They got all the ingredients that you know are going to work. You can get $15 off your first visit with a board-certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com slash heck, or use our code heck. Now, this code is only available to our listeners because nobody else would choose that code except for us. <laughs> so get started. Just go to apostrophe.com slash heck and begin your visit. Then you're going to use the code heck at sign up and you'll get $15 off your dermatology visit. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash heck and use that code heck to get your dermatology visit for $15 off. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast. One of the, this is gerrymandering, something we talked about with David Jolly last week. One of the other things we talked about was the amount of money in politics. And and David Jolly talked about how when he was in Congress in his first few weeks of Congress, he was told by Eric Cantor at the time um, that he had to raise $18,000 a week, I believe. No, Maybe it was a day. It was a ridiculous amount. It was a ridiculous amount that he had to go across the street to the um, NRCC and make phone calls and do call time. How much has that changed since you got into Congress in the 80s? How much more emphasis is placed on raising money now than it than was before? Uh, it's changed a good deal. It's, it's much more of an emphasis. Uh, again, I think the Republicans take it further than we do, but uh, we got plenty of members too, especially those in, in the Spanberger territory, you know, the ones who have these uh, contested seats who, who just have to raise money uh, all, over, all the time. And it's. Uh, but do you it, have it to? Is, I mean, do you have to do it for the party itself? The reason I have to raise money, I don't raise nearly as much as members like that do, but. But I, I tend to raise a million uh, or so per cycle. That's and that takes some effort. And the reason I have to do that is uh, I've occasionally had primaries, but but usually it's um, usually it's to help in the general election and not to help myself so much as I help other people. I uh, I have uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars that I'm uh, obligated to pay to the national campaign committee. I uh, I make hefty contributions to the state Democratic Party to. Uh, the different political action committees that get out the vote in the counties. I mean, it's really, um, it, it, uh, the money goes pretty fast and, but you do have to keep raising it, even if you have a reasonably safe seat. But when you, but when you say obligated, I mean, is that a, is, is it, is it who obligates? I mean, you got the seat. We've, I voted for you. <laughs> you got to be there. I mean, are you, who's, who do, who do congressmen and women answer to, um, besides their, constituents. I mean, who's telling these folks to raise money? Well, I'm not subject to very much uh, of that sort of overt pressure. Again, there are are more tales on the Republican side than there are on our side about uh, 
people who are being told their committee chairmanship might be in jeopardy if they don't, uh, you know, help the team, that sort of thing. A, a lot of that. Uh, Have you never is, wanted to be a chairman? Uh, I'm, I'm, did I not want to be a chairman? Of a, of a committee besides outside of a subcommittee. Have you been a chairman of a, a committee? No, I, no, I, well, I'm chairman of this uh, commission, this, uh, this uh, parliamentary commission, and I'm chairman of an appropriation subcommittee, which I think most people would say is, uh, is worth more than most chairmanships, <laughs> uh, simply well, because we, uh, we have the power of the purse. So, uh, well, yeah, we've I got an EPA, we got an EPA facility here. Thank you. Um, yeah, we <laughs> so, I, know, I mean, well, I, I understand I, it's good, it's important, but um, I, I noticed I that- being chairman. Nobody's ever made me think my chairmanship depended on uh, raising money. So the, the short answer is no. But if the question, do I feel some obligation to the team and do I, do I uh, read the, uh, you know, the uh, scorecards that come out occasionally that sell how much each of us is helping? Yeah, sure. I look at those things. and I, I feel some uh, peer pressure to uh, do my part. If you were writing your textbook, if you were writing David Jolly's textbook or if you were still teaching regularly at Duke, what would be different about your textbook? What would you edit today that is completely... Well, actually, that's a good question because I just, just got the fourth edition of that book out. Oh, did you? <laughs> and a lot How of, much a did lot you have of, to change? <laughs> I had to change a lot. I had to change a lot, much more than any other previous edition. It's partly that 15 years have passed, but it's also uh, that the institution has changed. And, and in, in what you've said, you've anticipated a lot of what, uh, what I'm uh, having to deal with. Uh, the institution is uh, far more polarized, far more uh, hyperpartisan, far more ideological in the sense of having members who, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is an extreme example, but she's not the only example of people who are just kind of out there on their own wavelength. It makes, makes it hard. makes it hard to uh, put uh, coalitions together, cooperative efforts together. And then it's more centralized, partly because it's more um, conflictful. And more difficult, then you got to have stronger leadership to uh, to get things done, and and then you add to that all these crises we're dealing with. I mean, the the pandemic, of course, is in a class to itself, but it's not the only crisis. I mean, we've had uh, government shutdowns, we've had uh, one kind of uh, budget uh, implosion or another for years, man-made crises. That then, uh, guess who has to come in and pick up the pieces? It's the uh, it's the leader, the dear leader. You know, the speaker or the, or the president, you know, you, uh, you, you uh, centralize power when you're operating under duress. And uh, so uh, that's what I write about in the book, about how, uh, how that has, uh, has changed. What I call the march towards centralization has uh, continued and, and some of the reasons for it. And, and some of the, uh, you know, I say there, I mean, look, I can put a D on my shirt and be a proud partisan when I need to be. Uh, sometimes that's important, but I I do look kind of wistfully at the days when uh, I when we marked up bills in committees into the night and we put the other uh, bipartisan groups to do amendments and you know we were really legislating and so much of that now uh, doesn't happen so much of the work we do is leadership driven. But you still enjoy it. I still enjoy it, and I still find uh, enough, <laughs> I, despite. Changes that I don't want to sound like an old fogey. I, you know, I, despite changes that aren't entirely agreeable, it still is a wonderful institution, worth defending, worth worth improving, worth worth uh, reforming. But uh, basically, uh, 
I, I think the the new brand of politician who operates on social media and who kind of uses the Congress as a just as a platform that um, that's not what the country the country depends on people who who believe in our democratic institutions and who make them work and um, that is a lot of what I write about in the book I we we cannot lose that and that's um, that's one reason the uh, invasion of January sixth was so. Uh, so offensive, you know, just the utter disdain for uh, institutions that have uh, been around for for over two centuries and that uh, represent a democratic experiment that uh, I, I guess all of us understand now it could be lost. It's not uh, it's not self-executing. Mm. Um, well, I want to use that uh, to segue into our, our questions from listeners, because we ask listeners to send in questions every week. They know who the guest's going to be, and they can send in guest, uh, questions in advance. Um, you can do that if you're listening on Twitter or Instagram at politicon.com, or you can email to podcasts at politicon.com. Um, and we have uh, quite a few uh, really good ones, I thought, for you this week. Trish from D.C. asks... This fencing is really starting to get me down. When can our capital open up again? Boy, don't I want to know that too. Uh, <laughs> I drove up from North Carolina today and uh, I, I live uh, within the perimeter. You know, I live on uh, in an apartment building uh, across from the Supreme Court. And, you know, getting to my place is uh, a, uh, an ordeal. And, and the, uh, the the fencing, it's, it's, uh, it's unsightly and it's... Uh, it's uh, a, a sign of the times, I realize, but, you know, we, we need some good security uh, measures that are less intrusive. And I think... Uh, is that I something we'll that's get, being worked out? I mean, is that something that people... It can, absolutely is being worked on. And, uh, you know, that I think people of all party stripes, partisan stripes, so don't want this place to be a fortress. I mean, when uh, Pennsylvania Avenue closed... Oh. It oh. it only yeah. closed more as, as it, this is something that you believe though. Unlike the closure of Pennsylvania Avenue, this is something that won't remain permanent. I don't believe so. I'm not. I'm not sure what will change, but I. But I think we will see the day when certainly we can go on Constitution and Independence Avenue again. And and I uh, and I hope that we have a reasonably open campus. There will be uh, there will be security checkpoints and and uh, whatever we need, but. Uh, there's a huge uh, symbolism, isn't there? Don't you? In, in the in the open campus here, the, the, I mean, the kind of the people's uh, house, right? The people's house, yeah, where people uh, where people can come and and uh, make their views known. And I'm I'm certainly wanting to uh, preserve that. Okay, Alicia from L.A. asks: Does infrastructure or stimulus have a better chance of bipartisanship? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and it's important to know the difference. Uh, by stimulus, I think that she means the the uh, what we're doing COVID, right, right. the COVID relief bill, mm -hmm. and uh, that's uh, that's not getting the bipartisan support that uh, one would hope uh, that it would. Uh, back in the CARES Act and the other other things we enacted last year, some got bipartisan support. Although even then, you know, Mitch McConnell sat on this for a long time. It was not easy. But now with the uh, Democrats in charge, uh, it remains to be seen how much uh, Republicans will will feel like uh, they, they want to cooperate. So uh, this, is, uh, this is something that we're uh, passing on a basis that uh, 
gets around the Senate filibuster. When you hear people talk about doing reconciliation, that's what it means. It's a it's a way of packaging the measure to get around the filibuster so that 50 plus one can pass it in the Senate. And that's probably prudent. It's probably what we need to do unless you want to mess around with this for months and, and still not get many Republican votes. So, so it's disappointing. But there will be some Republican votes for this, I think, in the end. And then comes the the other piece, the infrastructure. And here, too, there's been a lot of bipartisan talk. Uh, and uh, everybody around here says they're for infrastructure. And so uh, I want to I'm I'm chairman of the uh, appropriations subcommittee that funds infrastructure. So I'm going to be uh, a part of this. You can't get my son his train, right? (laughs) I want to do it as cooperatively as possible. I'll just put it that way. But there again, I don't know. The the, uh, economists, even some very conservative economists, tell us that uh, this is a time to invest. This is a time to bring the economy back and to make some investments. Interest rates are low. We we borrow now, but we, uh, and, and, you know, we will will, uh, deal with some of these budget issues uh, later, but this isn't the time. The danger, Jerome Powell, the head of the Fed, says, is uh, not going too, uh, too large. The danger is going too small. So uh, I, I feel that way about an infrastructure bill. It's been a long time coming. But there, too, I, uh, I think the, uh, the chances of, uh, of full bipartisan cooperation are, uh, are not great. The chances of, of some bipartisan cooperation, I think we can manage. Okay. I've got a few more I want to get to, so we'll do quick fire on some of these. Natalia from Detroit asks, are we focusing so much on taking revenge on Trump that we're ignoring the American people? Uh, No, no, I, I, it's a, it's a, it's a legitimate worry, but um, I don't think we had any choice, but to hold him accountable for the, uh, for, for what he instigated. And, um, and for the uh, big lie that led up to this, that uh, where he, for the first time in American history, really wanted to stay in power despite uh, a, a free and fair election. Uh, that didn't want to transfer power and and wanted a mob to storm the Capitol to halt the electoral count. I mean, just think about that. That's, um, that's really, really uh, over the line in terms of basic democratic practice. So I think we had to, had to hold him accountable. I think uh, a lot of Republicans uh, like um, Liz Cheney, I think, was a stand-up person on this. Uh, they recognized uh, this. That doesn't mean we uh, don't, uh, you know, we can we can do a number of things at the, at the same time, and, and I hope we're demonstrating it this week, because this very week we're going to pass the uh, the relief bill, and, and we'll go on from there. So, uh, but so, so uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to dwell on uh, Donald Trump any more than we have to. But I, I do think uh, the impeachment was fully warranted just because of the uh, egregiousness of the offense and the precedent we would have set if we let it go. Okay, Shauna from Chapel Hill. So be careful how you answer this one. All says, right, my constituent. <laughs> <laughs> so says, you've helped with student loans before. Should they be forgiven? Um, I'd like to see... Uh, I'd like to see some forgiveness, but I uh, I don't think they can be completely forgiven, and I don't think the forgiveness past a certain point should uh, should should not, should take no regard of income levels. You know, borrowing funds under reasonable terms, and we ought to make sure the terms are reasonable. 
but borrowing under under reasonable terms is a legitimate way to pay for your education. It's uh, it's an investment that will uh, bear returns, and uh, so uh, you know loans are made and loans are are paid back, hopefully with some flexibility with uh, regarding people's circumstances. So I don't think you. Um, Regardless of people's circumstances or income levels, I don't think you just have a blanket forgiveness. On the other hand, uh, there are a lot of people laboring under a lot of student debt out there. So, uh, a I would I would think some forgiveness would be would be good. I think that forgiveness should be focused on the lower income levels, and I also think that going forward, we need to uh, make sure the terms of those loans are uh, are favorable, and also that people can re. re uh, refinance the loans, just like you can do a house loan. Why wouldn't you be able to do that? Uh, Mm -hmm. So there's some things about student loans that still need to be made uh, more uh, consumer friendly. Shauna, if you're listening, which I hope you assume you are, since you sent in a question, if if, if you were hoping for, yes, they should all be forgiven. Remember, you got an honest answer and not some bullshit. He answered the question honestly. So I give mad, mad major props for that. Last question. Brittany from Charleston, South Carolina asks, despite our reputation, is the South the country's future? Oh, my. Uh, well, what should I say? Maybe <laughs> just, I, uh, <laughs> just say yes. We're biased, right? <laughs> I, I think maybe I think the right answer is yes, right? So, <laughs> she lives in uh, Charleston. She ain't voting for us. <laughs> listen, I, uh, I, uh, I, I don't think we any of us should think uh, our region probably is the is the whole uh, the whole ball of wax. But I love the South, and I, I especially love the New South. And I, uh, you know, I, I came from a small town in East Tennessee that was really not very Southern. It would, it came, this was uh, union territory during the civil war over there in East Tennessee. And, and then I came into, uh, into the more, uh, more typical South. And, and, uh, it's been a, it's been a political battle ever since with the forces that are contending for, uh, Southern allegiance. And, um, I, I think, uh, you know, our country's, our region has produced its share of reactionaries and racists and, I mean, we know the history, but we also know that it's hard to beat the South for um, mm-hmm. for people who uh, who want to make things better. And uh, you, you know, the reform reform uh, politics of the South is uh, is is what um, what formed me. You know, the civil rights movement and the, and the desire to um, the desire to put put uh, the the negative uh, past behind and to uh, broaden opportunity and all the rest. I mean, that's um, that's what our politics needs to be about. So uh, in that sense, yes, I'd love to see the South uh, lead the way. Well, listen, I will speak up on behalf of us by saying the South for all this, it says, despite our reputation, Brittany asks, I will, I, I want to remind people that, that the South also gave us people like Terry Sanford, who I've said many times is a political hero of mine also, um, who was one of the, the leaders of the New South that you're talking about right there. It also gave us people like Jim Hunt, like, uh, and North Carolina voted for Barack Obama in 2008. There are a lot of things about the South that I think get forgotten about in an effort in a, in an effort to put everything on a quick bumper sticker and and to forget some of the very I mean as you said Congressman there are quite a few things that we need to reckon with um, in the South uh, with our history but there are other things that I think we have to be incredibly proud of yeah and don't and don't forget the South produced John Lewis 
South produced Martin Luther King and the South produced, uh, uh, you know, now a couple of uh, generations of, uh, of black leadership that has, uh, has led the nation and, and has been forged in the struggles of the South. So, um, you know, we, we have, uh, we have a very complicated history, but, uh, I think there's a lot to learn from it and a lot to gain from it. Well, I will say one last thing here, that the South also produced David Price, and I'm not being hyperbolic to say that you have, from from my eighth grade year, <laughs> through the support you gave me when I ran for Congress in 2014, on through till now, been an incredible example to me of what a politician should do. And you probably don't remember uh, this story, but the year I ran for Congress, we both were at a Valentine's Day event for the either it was either the state party or the Wake it's County the, party. Yeah, Wake County and Raleigh. Okay, the Wake exactly County party. We were yeah. both at that and we were standing next to each other and I honestly can't remember who it was that was sort of hamming up the room in the middle. It was a it was a state candidate of some kind. It wasn't Roy Cooper, but it wasn't you and it wasn't me. It was somebody else. And I wish I could remember, but you said something to me, sort of to me and sort of aside. And you said that the best politicians think that, that politicians think that they are the most important person in the room and that public servants believe they are the least important person in the room and to strive to be a public servant. And oh I have remembered I that. that. You, do, uh, you well, don't remember no. that? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember you it, said, but it's a great said, sentiment. I hope I did say it. <laughs> <laughs> you did, trust me. Um, it was, and and I got to say, and I'm, I, I, you don't even have to respond, but to those people who are listening, I cannot think of another person other than maybe Joe Biden, honestly, um, who is so willing to show up for people who you represent. I remember walking in parades with you in Fayetteville where you would be 10, half a mile behind where everybody else was because you were shaking every single person's hand on the side of the road. And I remember, I'm not going to BS here. I'm just going to be honest. I was running for Congress. You were running for Congress for re-election, but I couldn't help but think, damn, he has no chance of losing in this blue, gerrymandered blue district. <laughs> no chance of losing in that general election. And you still were out there meeting everyone, talking to everyone. Your wife, Lisa, has been incredibly supportive of you for the all the years you've been doing this. But if if there are people who are listening who think about Washington and think about it being some sort of swamp, I can tell you personally that there are people in Congress right now, like the man who you've listened to tonight, Congressman Price, who actually are going to work every day to actually get things done. And I have to tell you that I can't, I cannot thank you enough for setting that example for me as a young man growing up and as an adult watching um, this 
watching your career and how you've served this district. And I can't thank you enough for setting that example for me and for so many others. You're not constantly out on TV, on camera, but you're actually getting crap done for North Carolina and for the country. And if more people went to Congress with your mindset to get to make progress, I think we'd be in a much better place. And I cannot thank you enough for being here with us this week to to talk about what you love to do and have done so well. So thank you so much, Congressman. Oh, thank you. That's uh, that's something to live up to. That's the way I'll take uh, take your words. I uh, well, you've I, already I, done it, but keep it I up. Appreciate, <laughs> uh, appreciate the chance to. Uh, to, to connect with what's obviously a nationwide audience here. And so you're very kind to have me on on the first anniversary. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Next week, if you're listening, Adam Gentleson, who was former chief of staff to uh, Senator Harry Reid, Majority Leader Harry Reid, he'll be with us next week um, as we get back to talking about how uh, the heck people in Congress can get along. But I'll ask you to close us out, Congressman Price. How the heck are we going to get along? Well, I guess remember uh, remember who who sent us and and what our uh, what our charge is and uh, and uh, keep our eye on on that. There's some uh, we have we have a saying, uh, you know, uh, cooperate where you can, fight where you must. But the of course the the gift is to know the difference, to know when to when mm-hmm. to operate uh, in a in a cooperative, uh, accommodating fashion, and when to just dig in your heels and say. No, no, it just has got to be. Uh, we got to do better, and uh, so politics is a constant challenge to for citizens and, and elected officials alike. And uh, so let's just hope as we have these kinds of discussions that we uh, we get uh, uh, we, we, we re- rekindle our determination, but also gain a little wisdom as well. So thank you, Clay. This is a great, great, uh, great hour. Thank you very much, Congressman. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>